from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Jen Easterly, director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has announced the first members of the agency's new advisory committee, including a cyber journalist and a leader in the hacker community. Those 23 members will be part of a group to advise and recommend changes to Easterly to enhance U.S. cyber defense. The members are leaders in areas like cybersecurity, technology, risk management, and more. The Office of Personnel Management is releasing two new tools to support agencies as they look to fill open positions in the federal workforce. The Talent Surge Executive Playbook will compile information on HR flexibilities, authorities, actions, and more to help with federal hiring and retention. OPM says it's working to streamline hiring processes and match the best talent available with open government roles. The White House is telling federal agencies to hold off on disciplining federal employees for vaccine noncompliance until early next year. In the meantime, the White House is encouraging agencies to offer counseling and education to those workers who are not yet vaccinated for COVID-19. Currently, 92% of the 3.5 million federal workers and military have received at least one shot. We'll talk more on that later in tonight's program. There are over 800,000 miles of communication cables lining the seafloor and circling continents. Around 95% of global internet traffic flows through those undersea cables. And it's time the U.S. government got serious about ensuring the security and resiliency of those cables. That's according to Justin Sherman, a non-resident fellow for the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Justin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what are the actual risks to these cables? These cables, as you said, carry the vast majority of internet traffic around the globe, whether that's emails we're sending, uh, you know, uh, social media posts we're making, videos we're watching. And so there's a risk that uh, these cables, which are laid across the ocean floor, are compromised in a number of ways. You could have a boat literally run into a cable uh, that's carrying traffic from one continent to another. You could have uh, nation states that are attempting to hack into or somehow disrupt the flow of that traffic for various reasons. So, you know, it's a key reminder that for all the internet is digital, it relies on this physical stuff to run. So tell me a little bit more about cyber hacking of uh, the information on those cables. It, and is that um, a bigger threat now than it was before when this kind of technology was first established? Yeah, these cables have been around for decades and decades. Um, they first carried telegraph communications years ago, right? So they, they predate the internet a, a lot. Um, that said, the more and more we load data onto these cables, the more and more that countries are trying to hack into those cables to see that information. And so, um, you know, virtually every country in the world tries to do this to spy, but the more data we have flowing over these systems, the more damaging those hacks can be. And at what point can they be actually hacked? I mean, is it, I mean, obviously the cable itself, you know, would be secure that way, wouldn't it? There are a couple of ways to, to tap into a submarine cable. So you can lay like a black box device literally on top of a cable underwater. 
You could build a back door into a cable before you even lay it under the ocean so that you're already spying before it even is activated. Um, but every cable also has uh, at least two landing stations, which are uh, the facilities at which that cable touches a shoreline. And so there's all kinds of equipment and software at those landing stations that's vulnerable to hacking as well. So you mentioned remote network management systems for cable infrastructure. How does that introduce more risk to the security of the cables? That has to do with these landing stations I just mentioned. So the companies that manage these cables, like many other companies, want to be able to control things remotely, monitor things off-site without having someone physically present at a facility. And so they're using these internet-connected tools to say, you know, how much traffic is flowing? Are there any disruptions? The problem is when you're linking these cables that carry 95% of our traffic to the internet in that way, it's easy for a hacker to break in without even touching the cable itself um, and mess with the data or spy on what people are saying. So what is the cable ship security program? The US government um, stood up a program essentially saying these cables are so essential to the economy, to national security, to everyday life that we're gonna have a couple ships on standby, government licensed, government subsidized ships, um, that in the event one of these cables is damaged, we can quickly repair it. Uh, and so this is something that's still getting off the ground right now, but it's really important because even something like uh, an accident that damages a cable, takes out some internet connection, could really have a damaging effect on U.S. businesses and our everyday lives as Americans. So submarine cables are owned by combinations of private uh, industries, public stakeholders. Who should take the lead on establishing security protocols to protect them? That's the key question. You have governments even and companies from all over the world, hundreds of them that invest in these cables. Uh, and so there isn't one entity that controls these cables. And even for cables touching the US, there's no single firm in charge. And so that's why uh, it's really key for the US government to do two things. One, to work more with industry to incentivize better security, but two, to do more outreach and diplomacy to these overseas companies and governments that invest in the cables too. So, I mean, who, when you say the government, what, is there a particular <laughs> government agency that should take the lead for, you know, ensuring security for the cables? Yeah, um, I think the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, in the Commerce Department, uh, is really, really good and credible in developing security standards. And so having them work on some security best practices uh, would be really useful. And then in the State Department, there's a lot of cyber capacity building going on, trying to work with other countries to help them boost their cybersecurity. And so making cables and this infrastructure a part of those programs is a really important mission. And what about Congress, um, Justin? What, what role should they play in protecting this infra internet infrastructure? Congress is the one that stood up uh, the cable ship security program you mentioned. And so continuing to build that out uh, is one way Congress can help. The other main way Congress can, can uh, do some good here is the U.S. government group uh, in the executive branch, Team Telecom, that is supposed to review these cables, foreign cables for security risks, 
doesn't really have enough authorities or money. And so uh, putting more into that would be really, really important. All right. Well, Justin, thanks so much. Nice to have you on the program. You can find a link to Justin's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, identifying and assessing risks in the thrift savings plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the highest risk categories and how the investment board is looking to address those issues. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Enterprise Risk Management, or ERM, helps to analyze the effectiveness of the Federal Retirement Thrift Savings Board's goals. The calendar year 2021 risk profile found several categories in the medium-high category that need to be addressed. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Savings Board. Hi, Kim. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Mimi. All right, so take us through the board's annual Enterprise Risk Management Program cycle. What's the system for identifying and assessing risks to your strategic goals? So we annually do a risk assessment, which leads to our risk profile, which leads to our risk treatment plans, which lead to monitoring and reporting on the uh, effectiveness of those plans, which then allow us to develop our, our agency-wide risk um, our risk profile, our risk appetite statement, excuse me, our risk appetite statement. And our risk appetite statement is not something we review annually, but that guides us um, in terms of our making operational decisions. Um, and this year, for example, we did increase our risk appetite in one of our areas in operational, uh, the operational uh, risk category, we moved from uh, low to medium. So, Kim, before you get too far uh, away from that, can you explain what is risk appetite? What does that mean? It means what are you willing to take on? And and so right now we're in the midst of several major transitions with contracts. Um, we're, we're moving to a financial systems modernization that'll go live in mid-January, as we've talked before. We're changing record keepers that'll go live next summer. Um, and while we're doing everything in our power to make sure those go as smoothly as possible, they carry risk. And so to, um, to acknowledge that and to make sure we're addressing that, we updated our um, risk uh, appetite statement to say, yes, we will take on more risk in our operational category to um, to reflect what we're actually doing. So one category with a higher risk score was insider threat management. What's right. lacking in that category and, and how are you gonna go about addressing that? So it's less that it, there's anything lacking and it's more that um, we, as, as you know, we manage um, quite a bit of money for the our 6.4 million participants. And there are a shocking number of bad guys out there. And so we wanna make sure that um, they're not inside, they're not working with anybody. Not that we have any reason to be, I, I don't wanna scare anybody, but we wanna make sure we have a robust insider threat program to make sure we're protecting the agency, our participants and the money we manage. 
And so we stood up this year, um, this past calendar year, we stood up a very robust insider threat program and that actually reduced our risk, um, our assessed risk in that from medium high to medium. So another category on the high end of risk scores was information security, which a lot of organizations are dealing with. What were the results that you found? What we did, um, that will remain probably medium high for forever and ever, no matter what we do. And again, that's more um, a reflection of the world in which we live and the number of bad actors and the multiplying threats. But we have taken a number of, of actions. We implemented uh, SOC as a service with the Department of Justice. We are working on a zero trust uh, program, uh, which is compliant with FISMA. We have uh, authorized 23 of our 25 systems. So again, a lot of work has gone into it, but given the world that we live in, that risk will never ever really go down. So TSP fraud had a medium high risk score. What is causing that um, score to be on the higher end of the results? It's again, based on the fact that we have more than $700 billion that, that we manage on behalf of our participants and that attracts attention. And we want to make sure that by giving it a risk score of medium high, it ensures that we are always paying attention to it and we are always doing everything we can to make sure that we're um, building a taller wall than the ladder that the bad guys are on. That's always a good thing. Uh, Kim, you're planning to implement a new integrated risk management tool, it's IRM. Tell us about that. The integrated risk management tool will be a repository for any number of things. It'll be um, our, our audit findings. It will be um, the constant continuous monitoring that we have on our vendors. Um, it will be the risks that we just talked about and the risk treatment plans. And the tool itself isn't the magic, it's the policies and the processes that will allow us to integrate that and make sure that we're looking, again, across the enterprise with a variety of inputs. Um, and, and that's gonna be a, a pretty big lift because again, trying to integrate um, IT risk and fraud risk and any other risk, plus all the audit findings and making sure that we're looking globally and making wise decisions on how to proceed. That's what we're gonna be doing in the upcoming year. All right, sounds good, Kim. Nice to talk to you and thanks for the update. Up next, disciplinary action could be coming early next year for unvaccinated federal employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what federal unions are saying about it. We'll be right back. The White House says federal employees who aren't complying with the vaccine mandate won't face disciplinary action until at least early next year. Those actions could mean unpaid suspensions or even getting fired. Lisa Ryan is a reporter at The Washington Post. She covers federal agencies and the management of government. Lisa, welcome. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. So there are about uh, 122,000 employees out of compliance with the mandate. So that means they're, they're both unvaccinated and haven't asked for an exemption. Why has the Biden administration asked agencies to wait on disciplinary action? 
I, I just, I should also say that the folks who have not asked for exemptions, I'm sorry, who have asked for exemptions are also not vaccinated, which is a much larger number that's harder to get our, our hands around. But I think the reason is really that the unions were pressing um, on a delay over the holidays to further disciplinary action. And I've been told by a number of attorneys who represent federal employees uh, in a variety of legal cases that it's not uncommon to carry out discipline uh, around the holidays and wait until they're over to take action. I think the difference here though is we're talking about a public health emergency and the Biden administration has been very clear that they take discipline very, very seriously, discipline and even as you said, you know, potential firing uh, very seriously. And this is not just one employee who um, was involved in misconduct of some kind. Uh, in fact, you could argue, you know, this isn't traditional misconduct. This is really the kind of um, misconduct that affects other employees. And for that reason, some people have argued that, well, time is really of the essence if you're trying to uh, ensure a safe a safe workforce. So this is really about it's the holidays. Let's not try to do something over the holidays. Let's just wait till January or February. Yeah, I think that's it. And also, though, I think that that one of the sort of misunderstandings with this whole process is that even in this kind of expedited world of, of, of the vaccine mandate, it does take a long time if you're going to eventually fire someone and the administration uh, understandably has taken the approach that first they're going to counsel people who are not are not vaccinated. They're going to basically have their supervisors talk to them and explain the value of vaccines uh, and explain you know how they're safe and effective and how it's really better for them to get the vaccines. I don't know that this will change many minds. It so I, that's what I was going to ask you, Lisa. Is do we know if this the vaccine counseling and education is is actually working? I really don't know because I think that the counseling in theory has been going on for you know a number of weeks. Uh, in fact, agencies were pretty upfront about um, having started this counseling process in early November, and that was basically the deadline for employees to have their second shot. And then November 22nd, which is you know the deadline we just passed, was really a more you know in theory a firmer a firmer deadline. So in in theory, for a few weeks, uh, people have been getting counseling, but I don't know in the continuum we're dealing with, uh, and I'm not sure that you know that the administration of the White House really knows, um, you know, how many people have signed on to getting vaccinated during those that period. So, what are federal employee unions saying in response to the White House's announcement? Well, the unions say that they actually push for this uh, delay and of course the term delay has gotten has gotten actually to be quite fraught but the unions uh, you know have sent missives to their to their members saying oh we really push for this to happen and we're so glad that the administration decided to hold off on further discipline uh, until January but what's really interesting um, here is that uh, the White House is not calling this a delay in fact uh, White House press secretary, Jen Psaki the other day uh, at her daily briefing, when asked this question said, oh, no, 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 this was always our plan. 
Uh, discipline takes a long time. It was always going to stretch out uh, deep into early next year, you know, January, February. Uh, and so this is really not a delay. So the White House, I think, is very much parsing its words. My, my belief is that, yes, this really is a delay, but, you know, you can, I think, you know, politicians uh, often, they're going to you know, spin it, right? They're going to well, spin it the way they spin it, and that's fine. So has mandatory testing of the unvaccinated started at the agencies? That is such a good question, and I don't act, we don't really have the answer on that. So, but if the past is any guide, I think the answer is no, uh, unless people want to do it voluntarily on their own. So uh, over the summer, uh, the Biden administration had a kind of um, initial sort of iteration of this policy that was similar to the now uh, controversial policy that they have issued for the private sector uh, for um, businesses with over 100 employees with this OSHA rule that has now been challenged in court and is moving its way uh, through that the federal court system. And that system for federal employees said, okay, we're not going to force you to get vaccinated, but what we're going to do is say, if you refuse, we're going to require weekly testing. So that system was by and large a failure. Um, you know, people have told us and I, and you know, administration and police uh, officials have, uh, have, have acknowledged that the testing system never got off the ground after two or three months. And I think that it was challenging for agencies to find contractors, to sign contracts, the decisions were, were complicated as to you know where the testing sites were going to be, were they going to be on-site at agencies, were people going to have to go elsewhere, and it never got off the ground. So all right, um, I guess I don't we're have gonna... evidence, but my gut says no, it hasn't started. We're, we'll have to get through the holidays and see what happens, Lisa. Thank you so much for being on the program. You can find a link to Lisa's article at govmatters.tv/resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and videos of our interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.